This is DC Beat, Episode 4, April 12, 2018. How does the U.S. get to 5G? The FCC and industry weigh in. This episode of DC Beat is brought to you by TIA's Capitol Hill Event Series. Convening policymakers and industry experts to discuss how advancing connectivity and innovation will empower consumers and businesses, generate investment and economic growth, and spur job creation across the country. Learn more at TIAonline.org. Hello, and welcome to TIA's DC Beat Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Dilip Shahari, Senior Policy Counsel and Director of Government Affairs at the Telecommunications Industry Association. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr, as well as by Nokia's Head of Policy and Government Relations for the Americas Region, Brian Hendricks, who also serves on TIA's Board of Directors. Today, we're going to be discussing the recent steps the FCC has taken to modernize our country's outdated rules for deploying wireless communications infrastructure, what that means for innovation, investment, and job creation, and how the U.S. is poised to make another big leap in connectivity. Uh, The global race to 5G is underway, and this effort to modernize regulations is about enabling the next generation of innovation and entrepreneurship in the United States, empowering new technologies like autonomous cars, virtual reality, smart city applications, bringing the many benefits of broadband internet access to communities large and small across America. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Um, I'll start with you, Commissioner Carr. Um, So you've really been leading the charge at the FCC on infrastructure issues. Could you just tell us a little bit about how that came to pass and maybe a little bit of an overview on what kind of issues the commission's been looking at? Thanks so much for having me on. So I've been at the FCC starting as a staffer back in 2012 and moved into this role as a commissioner in August of last year. And when I approached this job, to me what I was struck with was the tremendous opportunity we have in tech and telecom to help create jobs, spur investment, and grow the economy. A big piece of that is infrastructure reform. And that's why what we're talking about today is so important. Uh, When I look out there and you sort of start to talk about this next wave of innovation from autonomous cars to virtual reality to massive Internet of Things, what we need to get there, what's between here and there, the technologists are working on it, the engineers are working on it, but from my perspective in D.C., we need to create the, uh, the networks, make it easier to deploy the networks that are going to enable all that innovation. And that's why infrastructure reform is so important. So Chairman Pai designated me to take the lead on the FCC's wireless infrastructure proceeding, and that's where I've been putting the, the vast majority of my time inside the building Uh, is on those efforts. Right. Yeah, there's actually two proceedings, I think, right? Could you tell us a little bit about about that? That's right. Yeah, we have a couple different uh, areas of of workflows that we're working on. We have a wireline infrastructure proceeding that's ongoing. We have a wireless infrastructure proceeding, which I'm working on. We have uh, an advisory committee, the BDAC, the Broadband Deployment Advisory Committee. There's a couple of different work streams where we're all working in the same direction to try to streamline wireless infrastructure. From my perspective, it's particularly important um, for 5G. 5G, we talk a lot from the wireless perspective, but it's equally important on the wireline perspective. At the end of the day, 5G is about getting the wireless data into the wired networks that much faster. So yes, it's going to require hundreds of thousands of new cell sites, but it's also going to require many, many new miles of fiber and other high-speed wired connections. Brian, maybe you can help set some context for us. Why is this important to American consumers? Well, I'm glad you asked that because that's the piece of this that it really isn't talked about uh, enough in our judgment. So there's something very different about 5G than, than the backward-looking uh, 4G and 3G, and that is that 
What we're trying to enable with a lot more capacity, a lot lower latency, is use cases, frankly, that are going to be transformative in their impact on consumers. We're going to be able to receive remote medical treatment. Uh, we're going to be able to, to have imp great improvements in how we manage our, our infrastructure from utilities, water, uh, transportation management systems. But all of those things impose a, a greater uh, need on our networks than we have seen in, in the past with LTE as an example, which was a mobile broadband technology designed to give people access to the internet by their mobile phone and text and email. Um, with 5G, you have to have zero latency, much higher capacity, uh, and, and, and much greater coverage. And so the challenge is that we can't just simply reutilize the cell sites that we've had in the past, you know, which are larger macro sites using lower band and mid band spectrum. We need to bring all of the spectrum resources that we have to bear, millimeter wave, mid band, and low band in order to create that sort of network paradigm to enable these use cases. And the challenge is that we need probably 150 to 200,000 brand new sites in addition to repurposing the ones that are already out there. And if we have an infrastructure siting land use policy across the country that increases the timelines and the cost dramatically, there are going to be communities that become much more difficult from an economic viability perspective for carriers to look at. Why that's important to consumers is that we have the, the risk that we will not only extend the digital divide, but that we will actually exacerbate it. Because missing out on 5G technology is going to impose much greater limitations and costs on consumers than missing out on previous generations. Because so much more of our economy is going to be digitalized. Your participation, your interaction with the financial system, the healthcare system, et cetera. So there's really a very strong connection between siting reform and our ability to ensure that we don't miss communities this time with this deployment. Great. Commissioner Carr, so the FCC has already been very active on these issues in the past few months. Um, we've seen uh, items on a poll replacement order. We've seen uh, an order streamlining historic preservation and environmental reviews. Can you talk a, a little bit specifically about those items and what the commission is, is doing there? Sure. I think what, what Brian was saying was exactly right. You know, in my view, it's, it's not going to be a success for 5G if it's deployed purely in New York City, San Francisco, and similar similar. Uh, densely populated areas. We want 5G to go everywhere, and one of the biggest limiting factors right now is regulatory costs at the federal level, at the state level. Um, we adopted an order that I think is going to be a really important one uh, last month, and it reformed the federal approach to uh, environmental review and historic review, uh, both for small cells, uh, which is going to be a, a big piece of 5G, upwards of 80% of new cell deployments are going to be uh, these small cells, but it also uh, reformed our approach to the large towers as well. Um, by taking that reform, we can cut upwards of 30% of the total cost of deployment and take that out of the system. That's a tremendous benefit in terms of flipping the business cases for where 5G and small cells are going to be able to be deployed. Um, you know, I took a, a road trip through uh, Western Virginia, the Shenandoah Valley, met with a smaller wireless provider there, and they said that by cutting some of this federal regulatory red tape, that can allow them to deploy 13 new cell sites. Now, we need a lot more than 13 new cell sites across the country, but for this particular community, that could be a big deal. That could be the first um, high-speed wireless broadband option for a community or the first competitive option. And I want to see small cells, I want to see 5G infrastructure deployed 
as ubiquitously as possible. One of the biggest barriers right now is the economics of it. And a big part of that why economics don't work in a lot of communities is because of this federal, state, and local regulatory red tape. So last month, um, we adopted an order that, as I mentioned, streamlines a historic environmental review. It's going to be a big deal. So let me give you a couple more quick stats and figures. So last year, um, it cost uh, providers about uh, $36 million to comply with this federal review process. But because we're ramping up with 5G deployments, that number was expected to spike to $241 million this year. Um, that's unsustained would have that much cost going into red tape. And the problem was, in part, it wasn't going to process that was leading to any results. In 0.33%, in all deployments except 0.33%, these were millions of dollars that weren't resulting in any change in terms of deployment. So these regulatory reform efforts that we've done, I think are going to be a big deal in terms of helping to uh, get consumers uh, 5G. Brian, just to build on that, how is what the commission has sort of already done in this in this order really going to make a difference for, for industry? So let's put this in context. You know, C Commissioner Carr has already pointed out something like $240 million in projected costs would have been imposed on small cell deployments. If you take a look at a sort of an average small cell price of about 5000 uh, cutting $241 million of unnecessary regulatory expenses means about 50,000 more small cells are available for deployment. And when you're talking already about an experience where a $5,000 small cell starts to cost twenty dollars and $30,000 to deploy in some of these localities where you may have a $3,000 site inspection fee per small cell, you know, a $2,500 attachment fee, a $1,500 uh, a month uh, rent for the poll, before you've even run power or backhaul to it or turned up service to a single consumer, you've now spent $30,000 on each small cell. When you project that out across the sheer scale of the deployment that is required to enable 5G, you begin to see billions upon billions of dollars of regulatory cost. That's money not going into hardware to serve consumers. And where that's going to, the hammer is going to fall the hardest are in the places we, we need that greatest focus on deployment. These are places that had tough business cases in the past. These are rural areas. These are small carriers that want to deploy 5G that need to ensure that every dollar that they have for capital expenditure can actually go into putting hardware up to, to turn up service to people. Um, you know, the the 5G, we've, we've heard a lot about this race to 5G and everybody's benchmarking the United States against China and what Asia is doing. As a global vendor, Nokia is in a position to sort of really assess what are the different different enablers in, in those markets. Some of it is related to Spectrum, where the commission's been very aggressive here. Uh, frankly, we'd like to see them be a little bit more aggressive. But land use policy is not really a concern in Asia. Much different land use approach. You know, China built out LTE in 18 to 20 months. Uh, not, we're not suggesting totalitarian approaches to land use here. But land use in the United States should not be a variable that determines who gets broadband. And right now, it is. Uh, so, Commissioner Carr, the FCC's actions so far have... I think very logically started with the obstacles sort of at the federal government level. Um, but of course, there are also issues at the state and local level too, including long timelines for deployment, sometimes complete moratoria, uh, differential obstacles for new entrants to come into the marketplace. So how is the commission's sort of look at state and local issues kind of proceeding at this point? Yeah. Since I've been given leadership of the, the wireless infrastructure docket, I had divided it generally into 
uh, a bucket of federal issues that we were going to start with. That's what we did with the federal environmental historic review process. And then the next bucket is state and local issues. There's uh, state and localities out there that are forward thinking, uh, that are doing the right thing to try to encourage uh, broadband deployment, 5G deployment in their communities. Uh, and there's others that, that aren't quite in the same place. Congress has given the FCC a substantial amount of authority here in Section 253, the Communications Act, Section 332, to make sure that state and local laws aren't uh, inadvertently operating as barriers to deployment. And we are have an open proceeding on this. We're reviewing comments on that. Um, there's a number of potential ideas that have been teed up to make sure that we can get 5G out there ubiquitously without um, unintentionally, whether it's federal, state, or local laws standing in the way. As you've been sort of both at the earlier stage and at this stage, as you've sort of been reading through these comments, I'm just curious, is there anything that's really kind of jumped out at you and, and struck you? And, and also, what do you think is sort of the timeline for kind of the next steps that we'll see on this? We're taking a look now at, at how quickly we can get uh, another decision uh, developed and across the finish line. Some of the key issues that we're looking at that I've seen from the record Obviously, first and foremost is going to be fees. How much does it cost to attach uh, small cell infrastructure? Again, you're talking about much smaller devices um, that you, you cannot absorb the same regulatory cost that you could with a 100-foot, 200-foot macro cell tower. So fees tailored to uh, small cells, I think, is an important piece of it. Uh, generally, access to rights-of-way, making it clearer when and where and how you can quickly uh, deploy small cell infrastructure. Again, it's just, it's a very different dynamic from a network uh, where you have each individual small cell uh, and, and it quickly becomes uneconomical to deploy if you have to run the same process that you did for a large cell. So a big piece of this, I think, is just making sure state and local laws recognize, you know, what's unique about small cell from a business case, from a deployment uh, space, uh, and finding a way to, to move forward from there. Great. So last year, we know, um, soon after he took over, Chairman Pai also established this Broadband Deployment Advisory Committee, or BDAC, as you mentioned at the beginning. What exactly are they focused on, and how is their work sort of relating to what you're working on? Yeah, it's all very complementary. BDAC's looking at a number of issues, uh, including ones that, that touch on state and local. For instance, there's a working group there that is looking at fees, and is there a way to structure uh, state and local fees so they're cost-based? Obviously, uh, municipalities need to recover the costs that are imposed on them from small cell and all wireless deployments. But how do we uh, get the mindset to focus on the economic opportunity for the municipalities once we get this infrastructure deployed, the businesses that come in, the opportunity for citizens and consumers, the streamlining uh, of their own delivery of utility service or transportation service, and try to reorient uh, so that the deployment itself is viewed as a cost recovery mechanism uh, for the municipality, not as a uh, revenue or profit center, uh, and then look more long-term at the economic upside once they get that deployed. So that's an issue that one of the BDAC uh, working groups is looking at, and they're looking at other issues as well, including a model code that could be an exemplar for uh, states or municipalities that would be uh, protect their legitimate interest in zoning, but also make sure we're promoting um, digital opportunity in, in, in 5G deployment. Brian, why is the focus on state and local issues so important from the industry perspective? Well, for two reasons. One, uh, the commission and the the Trump administration and Congress are already working very hard on 
on pieces of this with siting on federal lands and shot clocks and streamlining and, uh, of course, the very important uh, bold actions on uh, tribal siting and historic preservation for small cells. What remains is sadly the biggest impediment, and that is the sheer volume of sites that are necessary for 5G in the U.S. are going to fall under the jurisdiction of state and local government. And I think it's important to point out a couple of things here. Uh, our experience is that you, you really have states and localities um, in, in, in different categories of preparedness and approach. Uh, in some municipalities, it's just a question of resourcing and inexperience and not having a master zoning agreement or any way to deal with the piles of siting applications that are coming forward. And I think Commissioner Carr quite correctly points out here establishing a model zoning agreement or a framework for uh, reasonable and rational approaches that can be picked up on by some of these smaller communities and, and utilized as a template is going to greatly speed uh, our experiences with those communities. Uh, that, however, alone isn't going to address the issue where we have some communities that have been fairly recalcitrant in in making uh, rights of way accessible at all. For example, I think that at one point there was 15 to 17 municipalities in the state of Florida alone that had moratoria on deployment of small infrastructure. So we have to take a look at that. Do we even have the opportunity to get access to the sites that are necessary? Um, and then I already talked about the sheer cost, the sheer scale uh, and scope of the fees that can be imposed on a relatively inexpensive piece of equipment that make it less viable. I think industry's done a very poor job, uh, ourselves included, in talking about two important dimensions here. One is the benefits, as Commissioner Carr notes, of 5G, the transformational capabilities. But the second really important part of that is why the network paradigm and the deployment architecture is so different. Why can't we re simply reutilize and repurpose sites that have been deployed before? You know, people are saying, I don't want my community blighted by having 100,000 small cells deployed, you know, at street level. Well, the fact remains, as I said earlier, we're going to be using a variety of spectrum bands to, to provide this umbrella framework to add lots of capacity and throughput and low latency to enable these, these core use cases for 5G. And the truth is, when you're using millimeter wave spectrum, you can't have something on a 100-foot tower. You lose too much of the capability for, for the small cell and the spectrum before you can even begin to, to transmit on a, on a horizontal basis. So you've got to be below the tree line. You've got to be close to street level with line of sight in order for, that's just physics. That's the science that's driving and the use case is driving the network deployment paradigm. So I think if we do a better job of talking about why we're asking for access to the sites that we're asking for access to, uh, helping uh, understand the, the benefits that we brought to the community, the challenges for the economic viability of projects if the if the fees are not rationally related to giving us that access, then I do think we're gonna we're gonna end up in this sort of standoff with state and local uh, officials. And and candidly, many of these these communities are customers of ours. It's a, it's a it's a strange relationship. We have a very effective working relationship. We build municipal broadband systems. So we want to be in a position to provide them with the capability set to be able to meet these these process these siting applications and processing of them. Small communities should be in a position to work together to provide access to the the infrastructure assets across the metropolitan area, for example, with a common master zoning agreement. There's a lot of best practices that can be adopted. Everybody jumps to the word preemption. That may be necessary if we can't use other tools, but I think there's enough opportunity to use the commission's proceeding and the BDAC and further activity from Congress and the executive orders to kind of 
to kind of get us to where we can get these these processes streamlined and these fees rationalized. Commissioner Carr, before we move on, any thoughts on what on what Brian just said in terms of you know trying to make this work with state and local governments and and those issues around preemption and all of those kinds of things? You know, I think that's right. Again, and his focus on what this means for for consumers, it's it's a big deal if we can change the regulatory framework. Uh, earlier this week, uh, I was in a small community, uh, Beatty, Nevada, and there was a one medical facility, not only in that town, but within 60 or 70 miles of there, and the medical facility was going to close down, uh, which would have been a real negative impact on the community. But with a broadband connection, a new high-speed connection of, that they were able to get, they could keep the clinic open, and they would have a, a nurse at that facility and a doctor would be located at a larger community. You can have a virtual uh, visit with the doctor. I mean, those types of things that have the real meaningful impact for communities and consumers, uh, and one of the big hurdles to getting there is infrastructure reform. That's why this is so important. So Brian also talked a little bit about some of the things the rest of the federal government is doing. Um, so the president issued an executive order on federal siting last year. We know Congress included some provisions on infrastructure siting in the Mobile Now Act that was included in the appropriations bill last year. And we've seen that um, the House uh, Energy and Commerce Committee has held a hearing on a whole bunch of bills related to telecom infrastructure. So uh, can you just comment on those efforts and how does what you're doing at the FCC sort of tie into those efforts? These are all really complementary uh, efforts that are going on, whether it's in the administration with their efforts on infrastructure or in Congress, as you noted. Uh, Congress in particular, there's a number of bills on the House side and the Senate side that are generating uh, really interesting forward-thinking ideas. We're able to act on some. There's other steps that um, they're better positioned than us in terms of legal authority and otherwise to move forward on. But I think we're all moving in the same direction, and it's good to see. Um, a lot of great ideas uh, are being generated in Congress right now on infrastructure reform. Um, and so I think we're in, a, in good shape in terms of making sure that we're all focusing on these issues and trying to adopt changes. Brian, you used to work on this in the Senate side of, uh, of Capitol Hill. How, how uh, do you see what's going on in Congress and in the administration complementing what Commissioner Carr is doing here? Uh, well, we, we all work in a city where conflict and confrontation and belief-based policymaking are, are the norm. There are, frankly, a lot of things we can't do as a result of that. And, and I think we share the, the philosophy and the view of Commissioner Carr and, and others here at the commission that this is something we can do and it's something that we must do. In terms of whether Congress will be able to, to do something here, I, I'll be complimentary of, of their efforts to date. I know there are ongoing uh, bipartisan discussions, particularly in the Senate, around uh, some streamlining legislation. I think based on my experience having worked there before, uh, when in 2010, 2011, we were negotiating the, the big framework that ultimately created the first net and the incentive auction, we took a whack at, at citing reform there. And there was a great deal of philosophical disagreement between Republicans and Democrats about the scope of that. Ultimately, what we settled on was co-locations, uh, swap outs, and changing existing sites would be of right, uh, and, and new sites would, would still provide the flexibility to localities. Uh, I think you'll see a very similar split now. There's a desire, particularly among Democrats, to to preserve state and, and local autonomy to a, to a great degree. But I think there's a there's a sweet spot and there's a middle ground here. And uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that they'll get to it. Um, but I think in the meantime, there's quite a bit that the commission can do to influence that debate. 
and and also how state and local governments are proceeding by continuing to to solicit comment on the record to move towards a uh, a rulemaking there and also to to continue driving the the benchmarking the the model approaches through the BDAC and and so I think that's that's key if congress is going to do something candidly I think it's going to have to be part of a bigger package of legislation probably next year if we turn to uh, pieces of the president's infrastructure proposal or congressional uh, consideration of their own views on an infrastructure package. I think this makes sense there because against the backdrop of facilitating broadband infrastructure and, and bridges and smart communities, I think the infrastructure uh, piece, siting piece makes a little bit more sense and might be a little bit more politically uh, feasible than if you tried to consider standalone legislation. But I think these are complementary processes, and, and by all means, the commission should continue moving forward with its docket. Great. Well, we're nearly at the end of our time. Um, just any closing thoughts, Brian? I'll go first to you on this. No, I think I said at the at the outset that there's 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 too much we can't do. That this is too critical and this is too important. Five uh, G is really it's not just a marketing pitch. It's going to be fundamental change to the way we communicate, to the way that we interact with the physical world, the way we do commerce, the way we receive medical treatment. Uh, in the past, it's been not accepted, but it's been a reality that where you lived sometimes determined whether or not you had access to advanced communications. It's been a persistent struggle for decades in communications. As a technologist, we have made great advances in the capability of our infrastructure, our ability to use different spectrum bands. Where you live is going to be much less of a consideration for whether or not you have access to advanced communications than at any previous time, provided we don't introduce additional barriers and hurdles, and it bears repeating. Land use policy should not be a variable in determining who in America gets access to 5G. Commissioner Carr, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I think we have a, a really good opportunity right now to come together in a, in a bipartisan, consensus-based way and move forward with infrastructure reform. These are critically important issues to make sure that all Americans can participate uh, in this next generation of innovation and get economic opportunity. And I think when we look back at our decision, uh, the most recent one on the federal reform, I was really heartened and in some ways surprised by the broad uh, spectrum of coalitions that came together that, uh, at least in the tech and telecom space, uh, are rarely on the same page on an issue that believed in moving forward and moving forward now so we can remove the regulatory red tape. And I, my hope and expectation is we're gonna continue to see this. These are important issues. Yeah, just one one final thought. I mean, I, I do think it bears saying that what the commission did in in this order for for tribal review and historic preservation, environmental impact planning on small cells is very important. It will have, but as much symbolically as the actual impact it will have in dollars and small cells deployed, it's because these are very contentious issues. And and in a, in a time and in a place where that often means inertia and no action, you know, Commissioner Carr should be commended because I think what they did was bold and courageous when you consider that they weren't going to get a lot of, uh, of, of uh, congratulations from people who are critics of reform. And the order may not have gone far enough for some people's liking. What they did was craft a rational, reasonable approach that protected the, the ability of, of tribes to, con to participate in in consultations on sightings that will actually impact where they live and to rationalize and eliminate abuse and did it in a very responsible way. And that makes me very, very hopeful that this commission can tackle the harder 
more contentious issue of state and local siting as well. Thanks very much, gentlemen, for your time today. We've been talking to FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr and to Brian Hendricks, Nokia's Head of Policy and Government Relations for the Americas region. I'm Dalip Shrihari, Senior Policy Counsel and Director of Government Affairs here at TIA. If you'd like to get upcoming episodes, you can subscribe via iTunes or other providers from our website at tiaonline.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. For more than 90 years, TIA has been at the intersection of access and influence. As a nonprofit organization, TIA engages regularly with key policymakers and influencers on behalf of our members, providing timely intelligence on important legislative and regulatory issues impacting your business. For more information on how to get involved and the benefits of membership, go to TIAonline.org.